0: We are in the book of First John and we are diving on in, continued into this wonderful chapter 2. And last week we only did like two verses, two to three verses in chapter 2. And this week we're going to kind of just do one verse because, you know, it sparks. It's going to take us, if it took us a year to get through Genesis... First John's at least two years. I'm just joking. It'll be a couple weeks, but so tonight our topic is walk like Jesus. This is the title of our message this evening, Walk Like Jesus. And it's from First John two. If you'll remember, last week, we talked a lot about how there's these beautiful themes in the gosp- in this epistle of John. Again, we don't know exactly who wrote it, if John wrote it or somebody wrote it under John's name, but we call it First John. So it's not quite an epistle either. It's a little bit different than that. But we talked about the themes that we love to go to. Easy ones, love, light, life, all of those things. But all of a sudden, then very right in the beginning of 1 John, he'll talk about the confession of sin, um, that we are all sinners, and he'll introduce this concept of sin and drops this crazy line on atoning sacrifice. So just for those of you maybe who weren't with us last week and those of us who are forgetful or um, slept slept through the sermon, I'm just going to remind you. Uh, John said this, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. These are huge, giant theological statements that John just brings in very sort of matter of fact, as if he's having a conversation that's typical for, you know, any coffee shop meeting you and I might be having. Now, following this statement, John then says this, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The one who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now these also are very huge, big statements, right? You don't ever probably maybe maybe in some um, fire brimstone days for some of us like sat down and said to somebody, "Hey, if you don't know Jesus, right, uh, the truth is not in you, and you if you don't do what He commands, you're a liar, right?" Is that how you start all of your um, Thanksgiving and Christmas conversations with your fellow Christian relatives? Right? You just start out with, "If you don't do what Jesus commands, you are a liar," Amen. <laughs> You just go right there. Um, I know that Pastor Kevin and I have both um, confessed and repented of some of our um, more fiery days early on, and I hope that I'm in good company when some of the rest of us... I'm still fiery. It's just a different way. I I remember being in an attorney's office for some family matters, and I was just young and in college, and my mom was like, well, you should probably come along and hear what's going on. I was like, okay, and I remember sitting there and looking at the attorney's shelves, and I said something like, so do you have the most important law book in the entire world? I mean, I'm so embarrassed to even tell you this. <laughs> and the attorney's like, what? And I'm like, I mean, do you have the Bible on your shelf? I mean, all these law books are very nice, but that is like the key cornerstone for all law going forward. I mean, you can't even interpret the constitution of the United States if you don't have the basic foundation. And he was like, my mom, I'm sure it's like, oh my God, why'd I invite her? <laughs> I've told her multiple times. Jesus is something we do on Sundays, not the rest of the week. So, so she's, you know, that was my, anybody else? I mean, I know prior to knowing Kevin, he had a lot of bumper stickers on his car I'm going to talk about it. And, um, and we have both said that neither one of us probably, the person that we were when we first met would probably not date the persons that we are today, and we would be praying for our very salvation. So um, I am aware of the fact that we have shifted and changed, but I still don't know that I ever, even in those days, started down with, if you don't do what Jesus commands, you're a liar. I mean, these are big Strong words right at the beginning, and then some of the context they're like, "And this is how we're going to know that you're in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus walked." Now that statement is weird. Like, I don't know. Is it like, are we supposed to learn how Jesus walked and then imitate that? You can tell by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman. Okay, so like, how do you? Is it that we were all supposed to somehow time travel back two thousand years ago? Well, Jesus kind of had like a little. You know, I don't know what, how do we walk like Jesus walked? And then when we start to take that passage and put it further into the context of 2,000 years ago, then I'm going to start to hear all these other resonances that maybe John is calling into too. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, this is Matthew chapter 4, he saw two brothers, Simon and called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James son of Zebedee and his brother John, and they were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So they're immediately walking like Jesus walked, right? I mean, he walks over he's like come follow me and I like, got it. Not fishermen anymore. We're going to just leave everything behind. Now, growing up, my only context for this type of experience was that sort of like Looney Tunes, because I'm a child of the seventies, Bugs Bunny. Like I could only in my mind, imagine when would it be okay for me to leave my family's business and my father and just ditch everything and follow this other random person that walked up into my neighborhood and said, Hey, come follow me. I think my mother warned me about people like that. So I couldn't, and I could not imagine what would cause these young men to get up and do that beyond just, you know, some sort of weird hypnotic gaze. Because that was the only reason why I would ever do that. I would never leave the job that I was doing with my parents and my father or my mother in that I would never leave and push and just start walking but we get some clues as to why that happened um, as we study the Jewish educational cultural of Jesus' day. Now, I want to just stop and say that I'm aware that this is kind of my favorite sermon to preach and that I have preached it on multiple occasions over the last 10 to 15 years. So for some of you, some of this information in this room is going to be a very important reminder of a thing that you and I can forget because we're human and we forget what it means to follow Jesus. So I'm going to give you some information on that. But I I think we have to do the whole thing because we are a growing um, new community. And I want to make sure that we're all on the same page because this concept and my study, our study on what the educational system looked like in Jesus's day and how people participated in it has changed entirely, not just the way that I read the gospels, or the New Testament has not only just changed how I'm going to understand 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. It has changed how I live my present every single day life with Jesus. More than anything else than I have ever done, in my entire life, this understanding has changed my followership of Jesus. Now, that's a very high bar for me to throw out at the beginning of the sermon. Like, by the end of this, you know, few more minutes, you're going to walk out. Totally changed. I'm not suggesting that. just, I want to share that for me, this has been um, deeply, radically um, shifting my entire way of how I look at how I live my life. As I follow Jesus. Now, when we first start about what the Jewish educational system looked like, and even looks like today, we can go back to very early texts. We all said the number one commandment. Jesus says it's the number one commandment in Mark 12. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got. And then Jesus connects Leviticus 19 to it, and love your neighbor as yourself. But right after that passage in in Deuteronomy chapter 6, love your Lord your God with everything— The text says this, These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So all the way back from Deuteronomy, right? Words attributed by Moses in his longest sermon ever. We have a system set up that says, You're supposed to listen to what God says, and you're supposed to impress that upon your hearts is like this word for memorize. And you're supposed to do this with your kids morning, noon, and night, when you get up, when you sit down, when you lie down, wherever you are constantly. And by the way, we still think you're probably gonna forget about it. So write the words and stick them on your door frames, and bind them on your hands when you pray and bind them on your forehead when you go, because this is how we are going to remember the very words of God. You see, for the Israelites... God was not a God you could see. God was a God we heard when we went to that mountain. So when we hear God's words and we hold those into our hearts, this is how we're going to start to, by command, immediately know that we have to pass this on to the next generation. The book of Joshua says, do not let this book of the law, the Torah, depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so you may be careful to do everything written in it, and you will be prosperous and successful. A quote from the Talmud says, okay, go then and consider which is the hour that is neither the day nor the night, and that's the hour you can study Greek wisdom. So, all right, so basically never. Every single waking moment will be only spent studying God's very word, and you're not to study anything else. None of those nice Western philosophers we talked about from The Good Place last week. (laughs) Josephus, a first century historian, writes this about the Jewish people. Our principal care, he's Jewish, he says our principal care in all of this is to educate our children well. The principal care of his generation, we are going to educate our children well, and we think it to be the most necessary business of our whole life to observe the laws that have been given to us and keep those rules of piety that have been delivered down to us. And this is how Josephus describes the Jewish people of the first century to his Roman audience. You want to know who we are? We're most concerned with educating our children. And we're most concerned with keeping these words in front of us all the time. So, of course, a community that's shaped by those ancient texts and shaped by that mindset is going to have some sort of system, slightly organized. Maybe we don't know exactly what time In terms of its development, it got to the full organization. But they had a system to educate their children. At the very beginning, before the age of six, five to six, children would be home. But about six then, they would start to go to a school called the Beit Sefer, the house of the book. And in the Talmud, it says, before the age of six, do not accept any pupils. From that age, you can accept them and stuff them with Torah like an ox. (laughs) So all of these kids particularly in the region of the Galilee, even more so than the place where the temple was in Jerusalem, because yes, there was study at the temple, but it was very much sort of uh, focused in around the priest systems of the day, the sacrificial systems of the day. Whereas in the Galilee, there became a stronger focus on study as a way of worship to God. And not that it wasn't present in Judea. It certainly was, but the Galilee ends up becoming the seat of rabbinic Judaism, like the most famous rabbis are going to come from this area. When you call Jesus additionally, this is okay. Just so you know, right? I mean, this is what we're talking about in the Jewish community. You want to know why we let all the kids just run around here at spark. It's because of this model, because we have learned that children who are put out and not brought into the community to learn and study. Don't make it their own. So then, after this, at the Beit Sefer, the children would come together. They'd have this wonderful sort of kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth grade, right? And there they would start to memorize the five books of Torah Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They didn't call them by their Greek Latin names, likely, okay? Um, so at that time, then, they would learn and study all of that the creation story, purity laws, because who better to know the laws of purity than the children whose hearts are pure? Can you imagine if we started our children's ministry program with, okay, kids, let's study Leviticus. Might not go over well, but it went, oh, this is important. And boys and girls together would be would be both educated together. In uh, 60s, 76 BCE to 67 BCE, there was a woman named Queen Salome of Alexandria, Shlom in rabbinic literature. She was the last queen, well, the last Judean ruler. And when she ruled, she was the only queen that ever ruled. had peace and everything with this one Queen Natalia earlier, but she was incredible. And Salome made it required for boys and girls to go to school. So 60 years before the time of Jesus, we have a leader of the Jewish people saying the education of boys and girls is of primary importance. I don't know if we can really appreciate how crazily amazing this is in this time of day. Uh Shabbat one nineteen B also from the Talmud said school children may not be made to neglect their studies even for the building of the temple, and the world endures only for the sake of the breath of school children. Like if the school children stop memorizing their texts and stop reciting this, then the world disappears. The regular upkeep of the schools was considered to be the secret of the existence and the strength of the nation, the Jewish nation as a whole, and of every single settlement. This is a modern scholar, Shmuel Safrai, And William Barclay says this, it would not be wrong to say that for the Jew, the child was the most important person in the community. Now, after kids would then study in the Beit Sefer, they would move on. Most girls would then go, all girls would go back to the home, study, live there, work and try to understand now that they know the laws of purity, how to keep the calendar, how to keep all of the rules of dietary, all of that stuff. And the boys would also continue to go and learn a trade. But some of them, at age 12 or 13, a boy would finish his studies at school. If he was gifted and so inclined, he went on then to a Beit Midrash, a house of study, to sit at the feet of teachers of the law with other adults who studied Torah in their spare time. Then from that point, these 12 and 13 year olds would continue to study the Torah, seek to understand. They would finish memorizing the rest of your Hebrew Bible, what we call what's called the Tanakh. So by the way, whenever Jesus is having a conversation with somebody, he's having a conversation with somebody that has not memorized, right? When he's having conversations with teachers of the law, religious leaders of his day, memorized. That's the kind of level of conversation they're able to have. So they continue to memorize the rest of this. After that, then, Beit Talmud would continue, if you were really gifted, you would continue to memorize now the oral teaching, repetition, and memory of all of it, and you'd learn the art of questions. If you'll recall, Jesus is at the temple when he's 12 years old, and they're amazed at his questions. And then you would start a relationship with a particular teacher or master called a rabbi, Uh, but again, maybe lowercase r rather than what we would think of necessarily today, a master of the Torah. Somebody who has gotten to that place in the community has put some authority into that individual, and you as a student or a talmid would go and start to study further with that person. If the boy showed further ability and willingness, he might even, after some years, go to one of the famous sages and stay with him for a number of years. Now, this relationship became intimate like a father and a son. He who teaches Torah to the child of another, it's as if as he, it's as if, if he, as if, as if, if he gave birth to him. Even there's a story like if you see and you go to the creek and your father and your rabbi are both drowning and you can only save one. You're always commanded to save the rabbi because your your father brought you into this world, but your rabbi gave you life. So it's this very intimate relationship when you have this. And then, ultimately, and I love this quote from the scholar Shmuel Safrai. he says this, study by itself did not transform a student into a disciple. There were subjects which could not be systematically studied or explicitly enunciated, and subtle spiritual matters could be learned only by participating in the master's life. Right? Like I, I'm so jealous of the disciples that they never had to say, hey, let's have a seminar on prayer right? They could just watch Jesus all the time. And yes, they did ask, Rabbi, teach us how to pray, this prayer for emergencies. And, and we can talk more about the context for that. But, but they got to see whatever the rabbi was doing, they could just absorb that. And this is how we all grew up, right? Phoebe keeps asking me questions. She'll say something, like, Mommy, did you teach me the word book? I'm like probably, I probably taught you the word book, right? How did I learn this word? How did I learn? Like, well, how did I learn how to do this? How did I learn how to walk? I'm like, well, some of that is innate to the human experience, but you also learn these things because you watch somebody, because you participate in the life of another person. This is the rabbi disciple relationship, and this is the model that was set up in Jesus's day. In fact, there was even a blessing for it in early rabbinic literature. It says, "Let your house be a meeting place for the sages, for the wise." and dust yourself with the dust of their feet, like sit in the dust at their feet and drink in their words as though you're very thirsty. This is the blessing that could be given to others. We have a picture of this in Jesus's ministry as well, don't we? When Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, that is a term for what a disciple does. The apostle Paul will later on say in Acts chapter 22 that he sat at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel, meaning that he's a disciple of, a student of. So when Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha is upset, maybe she's not just upset that Mary's not helping with the dishes. Maybe she's upset because there's been some sort of um, courageous turn here for this woman to choose to be a disciple of this rabbi and to sit at his feet. But what does Jesus say to her, to Martha, when she's upset? Mary's chosen the better part. That there is a rabbinic discipleship relationship even here with this woman named Mary. Paul will grab hold of this crazy system, this system where it's full imitation of life. The rabbi stands, you stand. The rabbi sits, you sit. The rabbi walks, you walk. The rabbi prays before they eat, you pray. The rabbi prays after you pray. All of that imitation of life. And Paul will say then this. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ, 1 Corinthians 11. This is a language that sits within a cultural context of that day. And this is the cultural context, a rabbinic system. Where from birth, you and I would have been raised to know the text, to study the text, but not just know it language, but know it living out in the rabbi that we follow. So now when we go back then to those disciples who are out fishing, they're fishing. They're not in the school. They didn't make it to those higher levels. They didn't get to Harvard. They didn't get to Stanford. They didn't get to community college. They didn't even get to, maybe they got to trade school. Okay, so they're out there at trade school. And then the professor comes who's already in some accounts been, you know, healing the sick and raising dead, doing this incredible teaching. And he says, Hey, follow me. No wonder they drop everything and go. It's the best invitation they've ever gotten. And the father's like, go get out of here. That's amazing. Now I can go and tell everybody that my sons have been chosen by this incredible rabbi To become like him. Because this is the system of the day. You didn't follow a rabbi because it was just like, oh, that's cool. And I'll get a certificate and it's nice on the college transcripts. You followed a rabbi because then that was what you would become. That it was in order to imitate that rabbi's life that you too would then be able to carry that teaching to others, offering them up to others that they also too might have the same thing to drink. So now let's go back to our first John passage. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. All of the context that we've just discussed is part of that. And the word walk in Hebrew is halak. And the way in which people would talk about rabbinic decisions, it's called halakha, which means to walk something out. So halakha is usually translated, sometimes we translate it as law. Sometimes it can denote a specific ruling, but it's really like the rabbi's interpretation of how you live out how to keep the Sabbath, how to keep those dietary laws. How do you keep Passover? How do you do all of those things? So when John says, or the author of first John says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. It is not like this, right? It is, you must live out your life through the interpretation and through the example of Jesus. You must holacically interpret and understand the text the way Jesus interprets and understands the text. That's what that word means. So this discipleship system invites us to walk like Jesus. And in Jesus, then we experience a new hope and vision into how God wants to run the world, don't we? When the woman comes with the issue of blood, we see Jesus healing her not keeping her outside. When the person comes with the shriveled hand, we see Jesus extending compassion. When the Gentile woman, when the Samaritan woman, when all we see Jesus engaging compassionately, loving, bringing forth, crying out injustice, crying out about hypocrisy, and taking all of that. And then ultimately, as Jesus has lived his life that way. It is not only in that that we understand that we are supposed to live and walk as Jesus walked, but we also see that the primary thing that Jesus ultimately does is he sacrifices his life. He lays it down and he says, there is no greater friend than this, the one who lays down his life for his friends. Now, if you're freaking out and thinking, well, this Jesus thing is impossible, I want to say, welcome to the club. I agree. It is very difficult, but it is also incredibly exciting. Because now every time you and I sit down and we read the text and we wrestle with these commands and we look at the life of Jesus and we see how Jesus has ordered his world and we start to pay attention to that, then we get to be, you get to know and I get to know that you are expected. I am expected that we are called and invited and expected and, and he believes in us, that's why he's called you, he'll say to his disciples, remember, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And he does all of this with the expectation that this can change the world and that we can live differently because of it. One of my favorite examples about this is from a man named Richard Wombrandt, who was tortured and arrested in communist Romania um, last century for his uh, followership of Jesus. And once he was in jail and being tortured terribly, there were people that would then renounce their faith, because there were others also arrested with him, and go back out and become agents for the state, essentially. And so people would come to Richard and say, What is the difference? Why is it that you don't just renounce your faith and go back out and become, you know, head of the communist church, um, an agent for the government? what is the problem? Why do they do it? Why don't you do it? And he said, well, there's a difference between being a disciple and a customer. A customer is somebody who comes to Jesus and says, I want what you have, but as soon as the price gets high, I'll go to the shop next door, right? That's what we do with a coffee shop or a dry cleaners or a bar. Like if the price gets too high at that one place, we move to the other shop and we go for the lower price. The disciple doesn't move when the price gets high. And I think part of what our challenge is within Christianity and part of my challenge growing up was that I think I had been sold the bill of goods. Like if you make Jesus your choice, you'll drive a Rolls Royce, right? Like um, if you follow Jesus, if you do everything he commands and everything will work out for you, your family won't get sick. Uh, you'll be to, be able to, you know, pray, pray whatever away. You'll be able to do this. You'll do that. All of these kinds of things. You'll know, pray that sickness away. Uh, pray for the right job. All of those kinds of things. But Jesus isn't Santa, Santa's not Santa like that either, right? But Jesus is not Santa. So this does not work. And when we think that the Christian life is supposed to be about us being really good so we can get good stuff, then we will get very disappointed very quickly. But if we know that the Christian life is about a full imitation of the one who loved the world so much that he gave himself for the world and laid down his life for the world, that he was so hated by the power of the day that he was crucified because of the way that he cared for people, because of the way he brought the marginalized in, because of those issues of justice that he spoke to, well then, you know, this life sounds a little more familiar. And it sounds like something that we can try at. You might not want to, but it's accessible. Dallas Willard says this, that the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. And I think the world knows that this is exactly what Jesus called us to. And I think the world knows that it's what we're supposed to be doing. I think we know it too. And it's why we get so angry when somebody who claims the name of Jesus acts so differently from him. Because we know that's not the way it's supposed to be. We know that's not it. You are not allowed to claim the name of Jesus and then act in hate. You are not allowed to claim the name of Jesus and then only say some people are welcome, not others. You are not allowed to claim the name of Jesus and not care about the foreigner or the orphan or the widow or the stranger or the person who looks different from you or the person who loves different from you. You are not allowed to claim Jesus and then stand there and with full hypocrisy and hatred in our heart say that we know better than Christ. His invitation to us is a full imitation into his life. So what is our role in the world? How do we live now that we've witnessed Jesus's life and death and resurrection? Now that we are forgiven and set free, now that he has become that atoning sacrifice for us, how is it that we live? What do we do differently? What is he truly calling us to do? Well, the rest of 1 John is going to try to talk about this, and we're going to dive into that more again next week. I'll start with saying, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over and over again and participate in his life. I'll also, I know this is super cheesy, the whole WWJD thing, right? Like, I get it. It was probably one of the bumper stickers on Kevin's car. Um, (laughs) But when we at least can stop and say, well, what did Jesus do? And we go back 2,000 years and we go, okay, so this was the system right? This was how they were equipped to go into the world. This was how they followed him with such an intensity. He could learn that life. Then we can start to say, well, what would he do today? And then ask the next question, what is Jesus doing right now? Because as followers of Jesus, we believe he's alive. What is he doing right now? Where do I look into the world and see Jesus at work? Where do I see people who are being marginalized being brought in? Where do I see people who are being pushed out, being cared for? Where is Jesus? Where is the place where we can go and study and sit at his feet? And where are the people? Get yourself somebody that's been following Jesus just a little bit longer than you have and start to follow them. They're going to make mistakes, okay? But just read your Gospels and then start following them. And then get somebody who's not been following quite as long as you have to follow you and then you'll be part of this system. Now, as daunting and as frightening as this system can seem, I just want to let you know that it works. And I know that it works because you're all in this room. Because this was the exact system that Jesus used to spread the good news of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. 2,000 years later, we're still talking about Jesus and his teachings because the disciples did this. Because after Jesus died and was resurrected, he sends them out. Go therefore into the entire world, teaching everyone to obey everything I've commanded you, baptize them, have them do mikvah, right? And make disciples. Make Talmudim. You duplicate this system. These three years we had together, now you go and do that. You make disciples. And I guarantee you every person in this room has somebody that they're discipling, maybe unintentionally. Somebody's watching you. And it might not even be about Jesus. It might be something in your job. It might be something at home. But somebody's watching because this is the system. Jesus could have chosen to write it, sky write it up in the sky for all of us to see 2,000 years ago. That's not the way he chose to tell this story. He chose to tell it through you and me, through a constant, through the power of the Holy Spirit, a constant way of imitating his life and bringing it to the next place to us. May you be covered in the dust of your Rabbi Jesus' feet and may you drink in his words as though you are very thirsty.